Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Karen Storr, the author of Choosing Freedom, a Kantian Guide to Life. Professor Storr joined the philosophy department at Georgetown in 2002, where she is the Ryan Family Professor of Metaphysics and Moral Philosophy. In 2011, she also became a senior research scholar in Georgetown's Kennedy Institute of Ethics. In the conversation, Karen and I discuss the life and philosophy of Immanuel Kant, what it means to live according to reason, why overcoming vice is more than half the battle, the role of hope, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book, Choosing Freedom is part of the Guides to the Good Life series by Oxford University Press, which are great. The series focuses on practical wisdom to live a good life. I highly recommend it. But before we bring on our guest, just one quick announcement. After doing a couple recent episodes on connection and loneliness, I decided to partner with The Walled Garden to start what I'm calling Reading in the Good Life. It's a free weekly meetup every Friday at noon Eastern over Zoom to offer a space for connection and conversations on the art of living. We plan to talk about good books and the good life. You can learn more and sign up for free at perennialleader.com or thewalledgarden.com slash events. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Karen Storr. Karen Storr, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed your book. And that's what we're going to be talking about, which is titled Choosing Freedom, A Content Guide to Life. But before we get into the book, would you mind sharing a little bit of your background? Sure. So I teach at Georgetown University, where I've been for about 20 years, and I really enjoy it there. It's a really fun place to teach and think about ethics. I've been interested in ethics for a long time, and I write a lot on Aristotle and Kant and a lot of other things too. But for me, the most exciting thing about ethics is talking with other people about it. So I'm looking forward to the show. Well, I love it. How did you know and decide on embarking on this this career of teaching philosophy? You know, I intended when I went to college, like a lot of 18-year-olds do, I had in mind that I was going to be go to law school, be a lawyer, and I don't know, save the world somehow or other. And I had this moment in senior year of college where I was like, that is not actually what I want to do. I want to teach. I want the academic life. And so I went that direction and have not looked back. And I've been fortunate to have some really good opportunities, but it's just an incredibly rewarding type of career. It's so much fun to encounter students 
you know, fresh out of high school. And it's just always a lively kind of environment to be in. Did you have an interest in Kant and Aristotle early on or when did that happen? So that started in college. I was sort of a latecomer to philosophy as a major. And I think I started out with a greater interest in Aristotle. My first philosophy class, I fell in love with the ancient Greek with the philosophy, the poetry, the drama, all of it. And so that has continued to be part of one of my philosophical sort of passions. But in graduate school, my dissertation advisor was a Kantian, and I was, at the time, not sort of sold on it. But I've since spent a lot of time teaching and thinking about both of them. And there's, there's parts of both theories that I really like. But one of the things that I found really appealing about Kant is it's a very useful way of framing and thinking through a lot of practical problems that I think matter quite a lot, especially ones centered around things like respect and self-respect. And so I think it's actually a much more powerful ethical theory than it's ever than it's usually given credit for. And it's one that I think just helps make sense of the world. And that's sort of what philosophy is all about, trying to make sense of, of things, of us and the world. And I think Kant's helpful for that. Well, as I said, I'm a big fan of the book. I'm also a fan of this Guides to the Good Life series. So I'm curious to ask, you know, embarking on this project of writing a book about Kant's philosophy for the general audience seems to be, you know, no small feat. Could you speak a little bit about the the project? Yes. So I got into it because Stephen Grimm at Fordham, who's the editor of the series, asked me if I'd do it. And, you know, it's if somebody asks you to do something, it's always good to think about it. And so it was his encouragement that really pulled me in and that with the OEP editor, Lucy Randall. And it's I was thinking I could do this because I teach Kant and I teach Georgetown requires an ethics class of all of its undergraduates. And so I've been teaching Kant forever. And so I have a lot of practice in trying to make Kant both sort of make sense and seem interesting to somewhat skeptical audiences. But this has been a really fun project for me because I initially I was like, I can't write a book like this about Kant. You know, of course, we think Kant is so complicated, but also because the framing of the book, this idea that's a guide to the good life is just not how most people think about Kant. And also the format, which you probably noticed, is to write a lot of short chapters, which is also not a way I was accustomed to writing and definitely not a way of writing about Kant. But once I kind of got into it, I was like, this is actually really fun. And I think it's really useful. It's nice having these sort of short places to talk about these different topics that often don't get much airtime in discussions of Kant, but that's all in there. So there's all these topics that people are like, really? Kant wrote about that? Like dinner parties and and I'm like, yeah, he did. And so it's it was really liberating in some ways, appropriately, for the title of the book, to be able to just think and write about Kant in a very different way than I had before. But my students have definitely been the test case for a lot of these ideas and framing. So they're, they're a large part of, if this book works, they're a large part of why. Well, great. It, it definitely works in in my view and for the listeners out there that may not be familiar with with Kant, it is very readable in these short chapters, not a thousand page book like many of the other books in the in the series that we've and we've had some of those authors on as well. So anyone not familiar with Immanuel Kant, you know, who is he? Yeah. So if people have heard of him or if they've heard the name, they tend to know like, oh, he's one of those sort of philosophical giants of Western history, Western philosophical history, which he absolutely is. There's no question about that. 
And if people have read him, they might know that he has these really sort of like long, intense and sort of inscrutable books. And he can also, I think, sometimes seem cold or impersonal. So for those who don't know who Kant is, he's Prussian. He grew up in or spent his entire life in a town of Kernersburg, which is now actually part of, it was Prussia at the time, is now part of Russia. It's a university town. Kant did not grow up wealthy. He is the son of a harness maker and lost his parents at a relatively young age, was dependent on others to help see him through school. And so he's very much kind of a self-made guy. And he lived in many ways a narrow life because he didn't really have the opportunity to travel beyond his town. But what he was is clearly a tremendous thinker. And he was a systematic thinker in that he wrote about just about everything. And he's been extremely influential on, on sort of the, the, all, well, the entire Enlightenment. He's an Enlightenment philosopher, heavily interested in the way in which reason shapes our thinking about the world, also kind of skeptical of reason in some ways. But his ethical theory is sort of well known for being really focused on this central principle called the categorical imperative, which is a fancy name for a principle, and emphasizing the role of reason in our lives. So for Kant, Kant is a believer in the possibility of a universal morality, one that applies to everyone, no matter who you are, when you lived, where you live, what your feelings are. He really thought that morality had to have this form if it's going to be morality. He thinks that's just what morality is. It can't just be like what I feel like doing and what you feel like doing. It has to be something that draws us together and binds us together. And so his theory is centered around this idea that all rational beings can converge on a single understanding of morality. So it's really ambitious and exciting. Some people think it's less plausible for that. That was a long answer. Sorry. No, it's great. So in terms of maybe defining things, you know, how would Kant define reason? Yeah, that's a good question. So for Kant, reason is a capacity that we have. And intuitively, you know, we think that we know what we're doing when we're reasoning. Like right now, when we're having this conversation, we're employing reasoning. And we tend to think of reasoning as distinct from emotion and feeling. And for Kant, it is, although he's not necessarily disparaging of those other parts of us. But for Kant, the way in which morality works is in some ways the way that mathematics works, that there are principles that we use in working out, not sort of theorems or 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 other kinds of sort of conclusions like that, but ways in which we can act. And so for Kant, reason is a way of thinking about ourselves in relationship to the world and doing so in a way that employs what we think of as our kind of cognition, but in ways that are complicated because Kant also believed that there were limits to what reason could tell us, that there are things that we can't know, reason isn't all powerful, but it is the best we have. And he thinks it's an incredibly useful way of understanding ourselves and our place in the world. And why does he feel that emotions or passions maybe is not necessarily the foundation for morality and it needs to be reason? So Kant thinks that when we are sort of being 
most ourselves in some way. It's when we're being rational. It's not that our emotions and passions aren't part of us, but reason is our way of being what he calls autonomous or which means like sort of self-governing. So for Kant, the way we want to live or the best way to live is a way in which we sort of, he says, give ourselves the moral law. But what he really means is sort of use our reason to decide on how we're going to live and to abide by those decisions. So it's sort of to make choices and live according to those choices. So Kant thinks that those are operations of reason. And emotions and passions, while they're part of us, he believes because he has, Kant has a lot of sympathy with the Stoics. You can see echoes of Stoicism in parts of his work, but he believes that emotions and passions, they can be useful, but very often they're distractions or they pull us away from what reason directs us to do. And this is something that we're all very familiar with in our own lives. And so for Kant, a lot of becoming a good person means ensuring that you are acting in ways that accord with your best judgments about what you should do and sort of staying the course. Maybe a simple, not so simple question. You know, how do we know if we're acting and, and living according to reason? That's a great question and a complicated one for Kant. So Kant thought that this principle, this rational moral principle that he calls the categorical imperative is something that each of us can know. So Kant does not think that morality is mysterious. He doesn't think you need a fancy education to know what you should do. He was really struck in many ways and admiring of his parents who had very little by way of formal education, but who were really, really good people. And Kant is struck by the fact he thinks that really, if we were to sort of all look in our hearts, we would know what to do, right? The, the battle comes with the fact that we often don't really want to look into our hearts or we do, but we don't really want to do it because it's inconvenient or we have to sacrifice too much. So Kant is a big believer in this idea that anyone who is willing to take it on can discern what morality tells them to do. And so a lot of becoming a better person for Kant is fighting the temptation, sort of not to really face up to the demands of morality. So in many ways, the big battle for being a good person for Kant is within us. But it's one he thinks we can all win if we set our minds to it. So he's really hopeful. I mean, he thinks things is really, really hard because we're really good at self-deception self and rationalization, but it's one that if we commit to a, a battle, we commit to fighting, we can win it. At least we can do pretty well. I love it. That's definitely a consistent theme throughout the book that this is a difficult thing to do. As you were just speaking about this idea that we maybe have an innate ability to know what is right and wrong, you write in the book, and and as you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, your interest in Aristotle, that he has a slightly different view on it. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways of understanding the sort of the central Aristotelian virtue that he calls practical wisdom, or it's phronesis in Greek which is the crucial virtue for Aristotle, because that for him is the virtue about knowing what's worthwhile in human life and pursuing it. Aristotle thinks that practical wisdom is hard to come by. 
in the sense that it takes a lot of sort of experience and reflection and sort of proper orientation to really have that knowledge. And so for Aristotle, virtue is a kind of specialization in some sense or specialty knowledge that we have to acquire in a very hard one hard one battle. And so Aristotle says, it's not surprising that say young people don't really have a lot of wisdom, whereas older people are more likely to. And there's, there's a lot that's appealing about that, I think. But it raises really interesting questions, I think, about whether everybody at all times really knows what the right thing to do is. I don't think Aristotle is committed to that. In fact, I think if anything, he's committed to thinking that's not true. But Kant believes that it is true, that anyone who's rational can know what to do. And that's a pretty big difference between them, as I see it. And I think Kant is committed to this in part because of the background. Kant has this really odd, sort of complicated relationship with religion, like many people do. But the background framework that Kant is working with is one in which we can be held to account or held up for judgment based on our actions. And that worldview requires the possibility that we can we can know them, like to be judged for your sins, you have to know that you're sinning. And so although Kant doesn't talk in those terms, he, he's committed to this idea that we all have it in our power to do what's right. And Aristotle, I think, is not committed to that. If Kant and Aristotle were to get together, would, would there be any sort of middle ground there that they could both agree on, you think? a lot that they would agree on. I mean, I think Aristotle, like Kant, values reason, that he thinks that, you know, acting virtuously is acting in a way that employs reasoning, good reasoning. They they agree, I think, on a lot of, they agreed on the importance of friendship. Their accounts of friendship have a lot of similarity to, the, to each other. They agree about the difficulty of, of knowing yourself and of figuring out what to do. They agree that you need to surround yourself with the right kind of people to help support you in your efforts to become better. So I think there's actually a lot of a lot of common ground between them. There's there's probably more common ground between them than there is separating them out. <laughs> I want to read this quote from Kant, which I love for some some weird reason and get your <laughs> thoughts on it. Uh, he says, "Out of such a crooked wood, a human being is made." Nothing entirely straight can be fabricated. You know, could you speak about Kant's view on, on human nature in that particular quote? Yeah, I also love that quote. I have the same reaction. Kant just says these really interesting things and I get fixated on them. Right. So Kant takes the view that human beings are subject. We all, he thinks we all have within us a predispos predisposition to the good. We can all be good people, but we also have what he calls this propensity toward radical evil. So radical evil is not like evil in the way that we think of it, but it's just sort of making anything but morality the principle of your will. So it's putting self-interest or self-conceit or anything, you know, on our Instagram likes, whatever, anything ahead of morality in your reasoning. So it's really common. Uh, and Kant thinks that we are constantly subject to it. And so this is the sense in which we're crooked. We're crooked, not in the sense we're thieves, but that there's always a way in which each of us is sort of tempted by the desire 
to put ourselves at the center of our moral universes and make it all about us. And Kant thinks we are constantly fighting this temptation. And that also there's no full overcoming of it. The best we can do is sort of like strengthen ourselves and steel ourselves against temptation, but we're never going to get rid of it. And so this is why he thinks that we can't sort of make things perfectly straight <laughs> because none of us is ever going to be perfect, at least not in this lifetime. Uh, because we do always have that fight against temptation. But but having said that, even though he's got this kind of like dark view of human nature, he's also really hopeful about the possibility that we can straighten ourselves out, which is one of the things I find really endearing about him because he's like super like, ooh, human beings, like kind of awful. But at the same time, we've got like so much potential. We can, you know, we can really be great. We, we can do great things, basically. But we're going to have to work at it. I find it beautiful. I, I love the idea of, of holding these seemingly two opposing views. Yeah. As you talk about that in, in reading your book, to me, it seems difficult to disagree with that. It fe feels true and, and right to me, but I'm sure in philosophy, there's philosophers that, that disagree, you know, are there some good opposing views from philosophers that come to mind? So probably sort of in the history of philosophy, the, sort of in some ways, the, the biggest opponent would be David Hume or people who sort of think, some of are called like sort of moral sentimentalists or, or people who think that morality is basically based on our feelings. So Hume's view is pretty complicated in that way. But the idea that sort of to be... Like to be a good person, to be moral is, you know, to have, you know, the right kinds of sympathies, the right kinds of emotions, to feel compassionate. And Kant doesn't necessarily disagree with that, except he's less, he's less trusting of emotions. And he also worries about the possibility that our emotions will lead us in the wrong direction, that they'll be subject to biases that reason is not. But it's not just that, because I think for Kant, what, what reason does for us, morality does for us, is give us a certain kind of control. And the control is not control over other people at all. It's sort of control over ourselves. I think there are a lot of people that are skeptical of Kant's confidence that we can get that kind of control. He places a whole lot of faith in our capacity for not just of knowing what morality is, but in also being able to choose it. And so I think there are people who think that psychologically what he says that we should be doing is not something that human beings are capable of doing or not all human beings are capable of doing. So I think that many of Kant's critics would be people who think he places too much weight in reason or is too optimistic that everybody's reason will point them in the same direction if we're all like sort of sufficiently good at introspecting. You know, this idea that the same principle lies within each of our hearts. I think there are people who are skeptical of that. Mm, I appreciate that. And you write in the book, I made this note that most moral philosophers are focused on cultivating virtue, but Kant is equally concerned about vice. Yeah. In the project of improving ourselves, overcoming vice is more than half the battle. That also seems so true and important. As, as I was reading that, I was thinking about some of these other wisdom traditions of like Buddhism and, and Stoicism of overcoming desires and aversions and things like that, of, of actually focusing on that. Yeah. So Kant 
thinks of virtue basically as just sort of strength, strength in, in being your commitment to morality, not mm. sort of wavering in it, which is pretty different from how Aristotle thinks about virtue. But he is very concerned about vice, both as a sort of way of sort of pulling us away from doing what we know is right, but also because of the way in which he thinks it can warp our reasoning. So Kant thinks that sort of one of our biggest moral challenges is trying to sort of maintain our grip on what we and other human beings are like. So for Kant, each of us has a moral status that he calls dignity. And to have dignity is to have a value that is incommensurable, can't be measured against anybody else's value. And it's unconditional. So it's not dependent on what other people think of you or how much they value it. So each of us has this value. And a lot of morality is about trying to sort of Remember that in all times. Remember that we have that value, that other people have that value. And Kant thinks this is really hard because there's a lot of ways in which people do stuff that make us like inclined to want to like disrespect them or find them annoying or hate them or so forth. And we can apply those same attitudes to ourselves. Like we can think of ourselves as being, you know, better than people or deserving of more people, vice of arrogance, or we can think of ourselves as being less than others, a vice that Kant calls servility. And so there's ways in which we need to tackle vice in some ways to sort of clear our clear our vision of the things that get in the way of that. And so many vices do that. They they warp our conception of ourselves and of other people, and especially of ourselves in relation to those other people. So the vice of arrogance makes me think that there's something about me that makes me more deserving of whatever it is, you know, the first place in line or more stuff or whatever than other people. And Kant thinks that's just false. And if I really understood the source of value of myself and others, I would see that it's false. So in order to get to the sort of morally right viewpoint, I have to get rid of vices. And so I think Kant is so focused on vice because he thinks that's the main thing that obscures our capacity to do what's right and to see each other in the right way. Let me ask a question about that situation when we're committing vice or about to commit vice, we can easily fool ourselves as, as, as we're going through that. Sometimes, as you mentioned there, you talked about arrogance and, and things like that. It can maybe feel like reason in the, in the moment, you know, any, any thoughts about, you know, maybe that point to get specific of, you know, right before committing a, a vice to actually use reason and not fool ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So Kant thinks that, I mean, exactly. Like Kant does think that vice disrupts our reasoning powers. And so in the moment when the arrogant person is sort of demanding, I don't know, like I'm picturing, I don't know, air travel, right? A plane gets canceled and the arrogant person wants their problem solved first, even if they're not the first one in line. Right. In the moment, that can seem perfectly reasonable. We're good at coming up with rationalizations and justifications for what we're doing. And those Kant thinks are the result of vice, that those are, 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 are ways of sort of warping our, warping our reasoning. But in ways that Kant thinks that we could correct, 
correcting it in the moment is sometimes a challenge. Like when you're really angry, it can be hard, as we all know, to see things straightforwardly, which is one of the reasons why Kant thinks that we really need to engage in the practice of sort of examining our conscience. He's a big believer in conscience. And he believes in the idea that if we're really prepared to look back honestly on our behavior, we can be like, yeah, actually, I was really being an arrogant jerk there. Many times we don't want to do that because we don't like to look at ourselves that way. But it is, it's a challenge to reason correctly. It's not something that we can take for granted. And some of that is going to be about working on our capacity to frame things well. So when the temptation is to try to like, I don't know, jump ahead of others or be really obnoxious about something or be rude to the customer service representative whose fault it is not that things are going badly, that kind of reframing like that this person, right, deserves my respect and my consideration and my behavior right now is not treating them that way. These things that we say to ourselves, Kant thinks that the truth of those things will be apparent to us when we're reasoning correctly. And so fighting vice is very much about trying to get rid of those things about our characters that prevent us from seeing people as they, he thinks we were all really. I've been on a YouTube binge on, on Kant over the last few, few weeks, and I've really enjoyed it. And I've, I hear people talk about maybe abstract or difficult philosophy, which, which I, I get that, but it does seem to be practical in the way of it's detailed. It's a, it's, there is a, a point of practical wisdom is maybe how I think about it, you know, everyday life. Like, for example, let me ask uh, you about the idea of, of free will. Like Kant talks about, we can't know that we have free will, but at the same time, we must act as if we do. Why is that important? And I, I don't quite fully understand why that's important, but it's it's for a practical reason. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question and a complicated one. So Kant thinks we cannot know for certain that we are free. That's one of the many things that reason cannot tell us. Reason also can't tell us whether there's a God. There's several other things that reason, important things that reason can't tell us. He just thinks reason just isn't that powerful. It doesn't work that way. But Kant thinks that we, some ways, and there's, there's different, he gives different arguments for this. There's a lot of scholarly controversy about the right way to interpret it. But I think this is a plausible enough way. Kant thinks that when we're sort of, occupying what we might call a practical standpoint, where we have to just decide, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do this afternoon? Am I going to goof off? Or am I going to do the work that I'm supposed to do? Am I going to grade papers? That if we were really like sort of didn't believe that free will was possible, right? That it was all determined. We could almost like just sit back and like watch and see what, let's, let's see what I'm going to do this afternoon. But Khan thinks like, you just can't take up that perspective on yourself. You have to decide, right? And if I just like decide, I'm going to sit back and watch, then I'm just deciding to sit back and watch. So there's sort of no escaping the sort of perspective where we just have to decide what we're going to do. And Kant thinks that once we realize that, we're going to see that even, even though we can't know whether we have free will, we have to sort of operate under the assumption that we can make choices and we can act on those choices, that it's up to me to decide how I'm going to spend my afternoon. And there are better and worse ways of spending the afternoon uh, from the standpoint of morality. And it's on me to choose the better way, the one that, you know, where I'm working, not goofing off. So Khan thinks even though we can't know that, it is 
in some ways, our way of experiencing the world and one that's unavoidable. So we don't really have a choice in some ways to pretend that we're determinists. He doesn't even think that makes sense in some ways. It seems to make sense to me, and it seems to be an important point. How do people think about that view today, modern philosophers? Yeah, so Kant's claim that we have this kind of freedom is certainly one of the more controversial parts of his of his thought. So the claim isn't really so much that we have it, but so much is, is that we sort of experience ourselves as having, or we have to think of ourselves as having it. But, and I think for a lot of people who think that actually know, like we're determined, or at least even if we're not fully determined that there's a lot of sort of things going on. Oh, there's the barking dogs. Mm -hmm. Uh, In our psychology, a lot of stuff is like under the, under the radar in a sense that we're not cognizant of that's influencing and shaping our behavior. So I think people would sometimes maybe doubt Kant's confidence that we can make choices in a way that he thinks we can, that I can sort of choose freely how I'm going to spend my afternoon and act according to that. So I think that's where some of the skepticism about Kant's ideas about freedom might come in. Mm. I've got another quote that uh, I really, I really love and I'd love to hear you speak to it a bit. It says, may you live your life as if the maxim of your actions were to become universal law. What does Kant mean here? Yeah. So that is one of the versions of his principle of the categorical imperative, which is a fancy name for a principle. But the idea of the categorical imperative is Kant thinks that morality has the form of a command, but it's a command that you give yourself crucially. It's not a command that comes from the outside that you're obeying because you're afraid you're going to get in trouble or going to get punished. That, But morality, he thinks, takes the form of commands. And so to act morally is to act on the basis of certain kinds of commands that you give yourself. But Kant thinks that those commands have to have a certain form. And the form that they have is reflected in this idea of a universal law. So Kant thinks that when we're acting, we're acting on something he calls a maxim, which is like a principle of action. It's like my principle of action is, you know, I'll drink coffee every morning or, you know, I'll, you know, get up early to work out or beat traffic or something like this. Those are maxims. Kant thinks that um, the, the right maxims to act on are maxims that can be what he calls universalized. And so this is in some ways, it kind of like sounds like asking, what if everybody did that? But it's not quite like that. It's instead what Kant wants to be sure of is that our maxims that we act on are compatible with other people acting on the same kinds of maxims that we're not, as we would often say, making an exception of ourselves, putting ourselves ahead of other people. So an example I use in the book, which is one of my favorite ones to illustrate this principle, is the idea of cutting to the front of a line. So... If your maxim is like, I'll cut to the front of the line at Starbucks whenever I just like want to get my coffee faster. Kant thinks that this maxim is not a morally justifiable maxim because it's a way of sort of putting myself 
in front of everyone else, not just like literally in the line, but also sort of figuratively, because what I can't do is universalize that maxim, which would mean like, imagine that everybody else has it as their maxim to cut to the front of the line. Well, we all know what happens. If everybody had it as their maxim to cut to the front of the line, there would be no lines anymore. It would just be like a big mass. So my cutting to the front of the line only works to my benefit when other people don't do it. And Khan thinks this is the clue that something's going wrong because I want like sort of privileges or standing or status for myself that I'm not willing to extend to other people. And Khan thinks that this shows that my reasoning is warped because I'm not according other people the same kind of value that I have. I'm operating on maxims that make me the most important thing in the world. And Khan thinks that's just false. And so the universalization test in that quote is a way of sort of checking my maxims to make sure that I'm really respecting everybody's equality. I love it. I think that is such a great question to ask. And I love the example that you have in the book and you just talked about there, the the line. Something you said and you talk about in the book about these things coming from us what would Kant think of in the way of principles like cardinal virtues? Is that something, you know, if the, the Stoics, for example, or somebody else or Plato talking about suggesting these four cardinal virtues to follow, is that a good idea? What does it mean for something to come from you that you're, that you're following? Yeah, so Kant really isn't part of the tradition that emphasizes the cardinal virtues. In part, well, I think he might wonder about some of the categorizing of them, like whether uh, wisdom should be one of them. Not that he thinks those things aren't virtues. I mean, he agrees, especially temperance, he agrees that these are virtues. But that way of sort of framing the virtues is not how he would do it. So Kant thinks that because morality has its source in each of us. He thinks this is the only way it could get the right kind of binding force. So if you're acting on certain kinds of principles or acting a certain way, because that's the way that it's done in your culture or your church, right? Or your community, Kant thinks, you might be acting in the right way. Like it might be that those are true, but you're acting sort of, it's the wrong kinds of reasons. Like it's somebody else's idea of what morality is. And even if they're right, Kant thinks, morality, if it's really to have the binding force that it needs to, it has to come from within us. So Kant isn't a relativist at all, because he thinks that what is in each of us is that categorical imperative, that it's bound by reason. But Kant thinks that if, unless morality is something that we bind ourselves by, that we see a law, as he says, a principle that we set for ourselves, it won't really be morality. It'll be something that we're doing for outside reasons, because that's what everybody else around us says to do. Or that's what our culture or tradition says. So I don't think Kant would think that even if the cardinal virtues are pointing us in the right direction, that it, we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be trying to develop them because somebody, a tradition says they're the cardinal virtues. For him, that would be not the right way of thinking about morality. Did that make sense? It does. And it's a bit of a strange question to, to throw your way. But I'm curious, like sometimes I think about the cardinal virtues, mm -hmm. but then there's some sort of gap there of where making something your own of like if it's courage, for example, well, what does it mean to be a courageous person? You know, some sort of 
clarity and personal commitment on your own to really even know what what that is. You know, if Kant was working with someone one on one on one, and it was about becoming a a, a more moral person, whether that be courage or what, whatever it may be, you know, how would you come to to find that? I guess. Yeah. So. Courage is a good example because it's a virtue that I think a lot of people have a grip on. You know, some other virtues, it's kind of hard to know what they're like, but we all know what courage is and what cowardice is. And, you know, Aristotle has this theory, right, where the the virtue is a mean between these two extremes of vices. So the two vices in question are cowardice and rashness. And so the courageous person, what's distinctive of them is they know what is worth risking their lives or welfare for, right? And they're right about that. And they have the wherewithal to do it which is really important for Aristotle. So to be courageous is to recognize that this is a case where I should, you know, risk my safety or sacrifice myself for this and that, and being able to do it. So that capacity for judgment about what is worth doing is certainly really difficult. And this is one of the things that makes Aristotelian virtue, what people say is kind of a skill because there's a lot you have to know. Like take, you know, running into a burning building. I mean, there's a reason why firefighters are trained, right? Because first of all, it's just hard to know how to do that without injuring yourself or getting more people killed. But it will depend a lot on what your capacity is. And of course, also what you're trying to save or what it is, you know, what's what's there. So for Kant, right, so Kant's going to believe that things that are courageous are required actions. But sorting out exactly when those are, Kant doesn't think is something that we can, I mean, he thinks there's value in trying to sort out like what, okay, here I am in this situation that requires me to risk my life. What should I do here? Kant thinks that we can reason to a conclusion from the categorical imperative. It's not always going to be super straightforward, though. He would also agree with Aristotle that there's an important part to making sure that you have the commitment to morality to, to, to be able to actually do it. So if you're like, it is right that I do this action that is going to cost me, you know, my physical safety, or maybe cost me my career, if we're talking about like courageously speaking out against something that will make you unpopular. Kant thinks you have to sort of know that that's right. And then you have to have the wherewithal to do it. And for Kant, that wherewithal, which is what he calls virtue, is it's not like sort of specialized to the virtue. It's a kind of strength of being like, this is the, I know this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it. And so it's a commitment to doing the right thing, basically, which in some ways is very broad. But Kant thinks that that's the part that's often hard for us is that commitment. Like, I'm going to do this, come what may, even if it is unpopular, even if people are going to think less of me, but I'm going to be committed to doing what's right. So, um, yeah, I, I think that you know, when we're thinking about, well, how can we sort of learn to be more courageous or learn to be something? In some ways, Kant thinks it's not, it's very hard to be courageous, but the the being, whatever it is, doing what's right uh, is hard. But what's difficult is not trying to, I don't know that he would sort it into the categories of like doing what is courageous versus like appropriate anger versus all those other things. It's not that he would think that it's not right or that it's a mistake to think about anger or fear in part of your self-improvement plan. But for him, it's all centered around this commitment to doing what's right. So that was a very long-winded answer. And I don't know if it really answered your question. No, I think so. And 
And I, I think it's an important, and an, I'm curious about it to stay with it for a little bit longer if we could. In some sort of situation, back to maybe initially what we were talking about, so Kant believes that we know what the right thing to do if we're living in accordance with reason, if we're in some sort of situation, whatever it may be, we know what essentially is the right thing to do. Is that correct? Yeah, or at least we could. So Kant doesn't think that like being a good person makes you omniscient or something. And I don't want to overstate the extent. Kant does think that there are a lot of situations in which it's difficult. You have to make hard choices. And he doesn't think that morality is always going to tell you how to make those hard choices. So the, there's sort of two kinds of duties in Kant. There's these duties he calls perfect duties and duties he calls imperfect duties. And perfect duties are basically constraints. They're things you mostly must not do no matter what. And imperfect duties are duties to have certain kinds of ends or certain kinds of goals or commitments. But whether or not you can act on those is going to depend on what else is at stake. So many people are familiar with trolley problems, you know, this thing like, can you push somebody off to stop the speeding trolley? Kant's answer to that, at least to the version, was, can you push the guy off the bridge to stop the trolley? Kant's answer was no, you can't. And in that case, it's fairly straightforward because in pushing the guy off the bridge to stop the trolley, you'd be using him in Kant's language as a mere means to saving the lives of other people. So it's not like saving those lives isn't good. It is a good thing to do. But for Kant, it's an imperfect duty. Saving lives is good. We ought to be trying to do it. But we can't take just any measures to save lives, right? And so there's going to be some things we might be able to do to save a life that Kant is just like, no, you can't do that at all. But in other cases where it's like, save these people or those people, then Kantianism isn't going to tell us exactly how to think about those cases. They're going to recognize that sometimes you are faced, you, you can't do all the morally good things there are to do in the world. And there, Kant says, you're going to have to use judgment. So he doesn't think it's going to be easy. And I think he thinks that there might be more than one right answer to those situations. But some of the ways of thinking about those situations are going to be bad ones. So, yeah, so in some ways he's confident that morality can always point us in the right direction, but he doesn't think that it will always settle the question of what we should do fully. Let me ask about mistakes, since it's it's difficult, it's challenging, we're not exactly straight. Seneca talks about the end of the day, he's going to reflect on his on his day, some sort of philosophical journaling. Is that a particular practice that Kant might might advise in the way of re reflection or journaling? Yes. So he doesn't specifically say that, but he does emphasize the importance of conscience. So Kant thinks you have a duty to make yourself better, to perfect yourself, both morally and naturally. And part of that duty to become a morally better person is to sort of reflect on what kind of person you've been to, how that's been going for you. But you have to approach it in the right way. So Kant has this like metaphor of a court that he uses where you're like judge, jury, and defendant that you can sort of, we can sort of evaluate our own behavior. And so Kant thinks, okay, this is kind of unpleasant to do, but we nevertheless have to do it because otherwise, how are we going to learn about ourselves? But what's interesting about Kant's account of conscience is that if you do it correctly, Kant thinks you have to go into it with a spirit of humility, with recognizing that very likely you really did mess up because humanity, that's the way we are, right? So you're just like, yes. But he thinks if you do it right, you're going to come out 
of these sort of reflection on conscience also like really inspired by your capacity to do better. So he thinks that when we reflect on our behavior, we shouldn't compare ourselves to other people because he thinks that when we do this, we tend to like do it in a self-serving way, like so that we'll always end up looking good. So he thinks that when we compare our behavior, we should compare it to what we know is the real standard, which is like the standard of just living up to that moral principle that we know. And he thinks that if we do that, we can see where we have fallen short, which will inspire, you know, kind of dejection, like, oh, I'm terrible. But not just that, because Kant's like, and it's in my power to do better. I can be better than this. And so Kant thinks that the process of reflecting on our consciences should be not just like, here's how I messed up, but also this kind of renewed confidence in my capacity to do better tomorrow or next time, which I think is really great. It is. And I love how the book wraps up on, uh, you know, hope and, and optimism, although it is is challenging. Let me ask you a final wrap-up question that we ask most guests, time permitted, and it's a question around wisdom, maybe how you define or think about wisdom in daily life. What comes to mind, Karen? Yeah, well, since you mentioned hope, I think one of the most interesting of Kant's insights is that, like, that first of all, that, that hope is a, is something you can do. You can choose to have hope in people, and I think Kant thinks that there is great wisdom and making that choice to have hope in ourselves and in other people. That this is something we can and should do to keep that at the forefront of our mind, that however bad things look, however rotten human beings seem to be, that we really can do better and that we can be hopeful and choose to be hopeful that we will do better. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, maybe especially right now when it's hard. Yeah, I love it. Well, this has been great. Where would you point listeners that are interested in learning more about you and, and your work in the world? Well, I do have a website, which I can direct you to. It's off my faculty page at Georgetown University in the philosophy department. And you can find it there. And that's probably the best jumping off point. Awesome. Well, we'll link that in the show notes. And again, the book is Choosing Freedom, A Content Guide to Life. Karen Storr, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.